Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm the New Statesman's web editor, Caroline Crampton, standing in again for your usual host, Helen Lewis, as she's still on holiday. Every week, the New Statesman team bring you an exciting mixture of discussion, interviews and stories. the Secretary of Public Affairs at Lambeth Palace and currently an Anglican priest and writer. And George has written the cover story for the New Statesman this week, um, in which, George, you've coined the concept of the new power Christians. Who are they? Well, Sophie, I think you called them the power Christians, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I agree with you. Um, I think there's a new generation of uh, Christian witness coming through uh, in places like the City of London, in commerce more generally, but uh, in the financial markets. Um, during the boom years up to 2008, um, uh, it was really about surviving as a Christian in the city. Um, how to live your faith in the city was had with it implications that, um, uh, that it was difficult. And it was difficult because uh, if you declared your Christian faith, you were uh, deemed to be uh, marginal, some sort of fanatic, um, probably not as good at making money as the uh, clear-eyed Gordon Geckos of the financial markets. Since 2008, and since the, 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 the sort of false gods of the, of the free markets have been exposed, I think there's a new confidence in uh, Christians in a city, probably people of any religion, but I mean, I'm noting it particularly with regard to my own faith and Christianity and so on. And I think now it's not about sort of surviving with your faith in the city. It's more a question of uh, what we describe as more Mr. Nice Guy, uh, by which I mean um, uh, making one's own witness to Christianity non-negotiable. No, this is this informs my entire life and therefore my work and the markets mm. must serve these tenets of faith. And beyond that, I mean, one of the people you speak to in the piece describes using business as a means of advancing the kingdom of God. So, I mean, it's sort mm. of taking it a step further even. And what what did he mean by that? Well, if you're, if you're to accept that, um, uh, that we are living in God's creation, uh, I mean, I don't think you need to be a swivel-eyed uh, creationist to claiming that uh, the world was made uh, in six days, etc., etc., and is only ten thousand years old. If, but if you're accepting that God is in all parts of creation, um, then clearly He's in financial markets as much as He is in the church fate. 
uh, I, he is in um, uh, the processes of banking uh, as much as he is in fair trade and uh, worthy activities of volunteering and charity work and so on. And if that's the case then, um, what you're talking about is what really the Bible refers to as the powers and principalities, which uh, in those days were kingdoms and the Roman Empire and so on. And now, of course, are multinational companies and global finance. Mm. Um, so what these people are saying is that the, if the powers and principalities in the old days uh, needed to be turned to the advancement of the kingdom of heaven, then so do the financial markets today. Mm. But I the... should have put that in my piece. <laughs> but mm. the, the pursuit of of profit to the degree that we still see it in the city of London. It's not that that's changed mm. since 2008. I mean, mm. in many ways, they're back to their old ways. I mean, is that always in, yeah. in keeping with the tenets of your faith? Well, yeah, yeah I did. there's nothing uh, particularly wicked about making profits. It's um, I mean, the big question that we need to ask is, uh, who does your wealth enrich? Yeah. Uh, if it's just uh, about enriching uh, oneself, then that's likely to blind you to what's happening in the world. But if you can put it to the service of the world, and lots of people I've been speaking to, or at least one or two of the people I've been speaking to for purposes of this feature, uh, are demonstrably uh, using the wealth that they generate in the city to... Uh, to further the circumstances and lives of people that are very much more disadvantaged. Um, you know, there's, there are those that are putting their wealth to work uh, in proper gospel witness in terms of assisting the poorest and most vulnerable in our world. And um, that, as the gospels tell us, uh, is what serving the Christ is all about. Mm. And of course... Uh, you sound sceptical. Well, I, you know, <laughs> only slightly. Um, Justin Welby, the new Archbishop of Canterbury, yeah. is obviously has a background in this world, and I, I wonder, yes, how, how does he fit yeah. into the picture? Well, I, 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 you say he has a background in this world, and it's un, undoubtedly the case that he had a few years as a finance director of big oil companies in mm -hmm. the 1980s. Actually, I don't think that's as significant as his time. Uh, in Holy Trinity Brompton, mm. the, um, the 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 kind of city whiz kids church uh, mm -hmm. in in Knightsbridge, um, and from there into a wider uh, set of uh, church traditions, um, the Catholic tradition he was exposed to in um, the Anglo-Catholic that is tradition uh, as Dean of Liverpool and in his work in Africa in dispute resolution and so on. So he has a very wide experience. But I think what's, what's interesting about Welby is that he, he, he has a lot of worldly experience and also he's something of an outsider. He comes from a very privileged background, but um, he's, uh, he's, he's of the establishment, but also able to be a thorn in the side of the establishment. He comes from a rather eccentric family that is descended from the... Uh, the great dynasties of the Conservative Party and therefore is sort of born into the establishment. But he, then in adulthood discovered that it had been kept from him that his paternal grandfather was a Jewish immigrant. Um, and I think this this has given him an interesting mixture of being, of being of the establishment but something of a seed of its own destruction. Mm. Uh, and um, I think his ability to be an outsider gives him the ability to tap into that kind of radical alternative Christian idea, that, uh, that, that outrageous idea that, um, uh, that the world isn't about uh, building up treasures for yourself, 
um, but about loving your neighbour. And if the city, you know, he's the sort of person that can see how that purpose can be fulfilled uh, through the city as much as through uh, the church. Mm. And as different... There's that, mm, again. As, as, as different in character, though, and, and background um, to your former boss, Rowan Williams, as, as could be? Um, I think... I think uh, I think we're all uh, unique um, uh, as human beings, and but we're all very much the same as human beings too. It's one of the sort of great wonders of the human condition. Um, uh, but you can tell I'm avoiding uh, a direct <laughs> answer to your question there, because um, I'm very fond of uh, Rowan Williams. But um, I think I think you're right to observe that Rowan had a formidable uh, intellectual brain that was that was um, schooled and developed in the groves of academe. Mm. Uh, actually, he's a very worldly bloke. He's, uh, he, he, uh, he'd served a lot of his ministry in some of the harshest uh, sharp ends of society in, uh, in Wales, where the economy is really, uh, in many parts, flat on its back and there is real poverty. So he knows what's going on in the world. But I think you're right to observe um, that his gifts are very cerebral mm. and probably Justin Welby's gifts are very practical and in terms of application and the and a sort of contextual theology um, uh, so I think um, I, I think Justin Welby would differ in as much as he's probably more prepared to get down and dirty uh, with um, institutions in our society such as the banks and mm. we've seen him being highly critical uh, on the um, on the parliamentary committee into uh, into the fixing of interest rates, um, where he does ask very searching questions of bankers, and you know I think that very directness probably is different from Rowan's very cerebral consideration of all the alternatives. Mm -hmm. Both very valuable witnesses, but different in their ways. Mm. Thank you very much, George. the new nature writing and it has been a really fertile interesting uh sort of part of our literature i think especially in the last say five ten years um with people like robert mcfarlane who she is obviously uh, writing about um and i think her, her sort of main problem having been a great admirer of 
uh, such sort of wild writing, as she calls it, and the works of Rev. Roger Deakin, who's the kind of godfather of the movement, if you, if you like, um, is in some ways it's, uh, it's well, I think the her concluding point is one of the most important, which is its lack of humour, that in some ways, and, and she sort of um, absolves Deakin from this, but in this particular review of Holloway, she sort of, it, it, there's an earnestness, there's a seriousness, there's a, a lack of kind of levity and um, and humanity almost to it that it that we've maybe taken sort of nature writing to this rather um, stultifying place and uh, and and sort of the, and the writers have maybe taking themselves quite seriously as mm. well and I think there is something interesting in that um, in in that it's a form that perhaps does more than others summon a kind of a, perhaps a sort of over reverence of its subject. Mm. And she talks about the, the the movement and its sort of um, need for kind of escape, you know. Is this work escapism, would you say? Or do you mm. think there's a political dimension? I mean, is is it more complex than that? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting point. And I think, um, you know, at the New Statesman, we've sort of brought in nature writing in the last couple of years quite purposefully um, and... And expressly to, with a political edge, I think, in the writings, for example, of John Burnside, who writes a regular nature column at the back of the magazine. Um, and, and I think absolutely the key thing to say about the form in its, in its best sense is when it's grappling with those issues, with the idea of how we fit into this natural world and how mm. we have a human relationship with it, which is an entirely political, uh, well, in some ways, a, a political um, relationship. And that the idea that it's something which is just beautiful and separate that we admire, that it's sort of pure, um, is is clearly misguided. Not only because of environmental issues, because of climate change, because of our impact on the natural world, but just because it's a living, breathing, changing thing that mm. we are mixed up with. And that, as John Burnside does so well, I think, in whenever he writes, it, he, he's always talking. You know, it's always full of admiration and poetic kind of discussion of. The subject, whether it's magnolia trees or insects or a, a bird that he loves in Scotland where he lives, but there'll always be an element which is really trying to get to grips with what, what's our place in this and what are we doing and what you know the green movement is that in any way grappling with the realities of, of our, our relationship on, with the natural world. On that, this is what I think is is one of the distinguishing features of of more recent nature writing is it seems to have moved beyond. A kind of, uh, you know, sort of, um, kind of apocalyptic vision of, of what's happening in the countryside. So we have a piece in this week's magazine um, by Richard Maybe about ash dieback, about what's happening to our our trees, um, and it's a really interesting piece because. It doesn't just say, oh, you know, we've got very low, you know, diversity, the kind of narrative that you heard on the radio, you know, it's all kind of kind of downhill. And I think something that seems to be emerging in a lot of, of nature writing that I've seen is is the idea that, that, that nature is not only something that needs to be defended, that it has its own defence mm. mechanism mm. and that things, you know, that we shouldn't see ourselves as being aside from, from nature and that, you know... I mean, John Gray is, is utterly convinced that, you know, nature will take care of us before we'll take care of nature. Well, no, it's, it's yeah, it's a really interesting sort of territory because uh, absolutely maybe his point in this piece about ash trees, and it's a, a beautiful piece of writing, 
is is absolutely who who are we in a way to think that we can fix this that we can control this mm. and that often and it's something that John Burnside shares in his thinking about the natural world that there are elements of the green movement of conservation movement that that are in a way a, a, that sort of frenetic overmanaging of nature that we think that we know best that we've got the answers so whether it's replanting certain types of tree or um, you know frantically worrying and, and sort of managing landscapes or particular wildlife populations and that in our interference which is often with the best of intentions that we actually have we don't necessarily do more harm than good but we're not letting nature get on with it and that quite often and he cites you know after the 1987 storm for example mm. um that that nature has a, a wonderful way of taking its own course and without our interference and without sort of human interaction um, and then in a way, uh, and again, he, he's written a wonderful book, Beachcombings, about this maybe, about um, his experience of, of having his own beechwood and how he sort of loved it and immersed himself in it and loved sort of prettifying it and, you know, making sure that he was encouraging the younger beech trees to grow and, um, you know, was frantically involved with it and then sort of finally realised that it had become essentially another form of play, sort of human playground. Mm. And that really wasn't what the, the sort of wider purpose of this was that actually if you're really interested in wildness and in and in and in nature doing its thing then you let it you let it be thanks Sophie earlier this week Rebellion publishers of British anthology comic 2000 AD revealed that it was preparing to reprint Grant Morrison and Steve Yell's Zenith exploring ideas of generational inheritance, fame and iconography through the lens of a less-than-heroic son of a superhero. Zenith has been out of print for over 20 years now. Long ago, it had gained the status of one of comics' lost classics, one of a number of titles which, due to copyright issues, intransigent creators or just plain pig-headedness, seemed likely to never be reprinted, despite their obvious brilliance. But where other greats, like Alan Moore's Marvel Man and Osamu Tezuka's Phoenix, are only available if you've got a large budget and a lot of time to trawl eBay, Zenith is coming back, albeit in a limited run of a thousand copies of a £100 deluxe hardcover. That ought to be fantastic news for a select few of lucky comics fans, but it's tempered by the fact that Grant Morrison himself, the writer of the comic, has refused to comment on the reprint. Way back in the late 1980s, when Zenith was written, 2000 AD and the British comics industry in general was a very different place. Although all of the work done there was so-called work for hire, where the artist is paid a fee for their work and the publisher owns their creations, there was little paperwork and agreements were normally concluded with a handshake and a cash payment. As a result, there's no contract backing up Rebellion's claim to own the work, and Morrison has spent the last 20 years blocking reprints. The conflict has split the comics community. Some are just glad to see one of the best-regarded British comics of its generation reprinted. Others are concerned that this is another example of something unhappily common in comics, the visionary genius being screwed over by the money men. But in all the fuss, one person's been forgotten. Steve Yole, the artist of Zenith. Unlike Morrison, he's outspoken in his support of the reprint, and no wonder. Where Morrison's work since Zenith has bought him a house in LA, friendship with My Chemical Romance's Gerard Way, and an MBE, Yole still works for 2000 AD recently concluding the 10-year pirate epic The Red Seas with writer Ian Edgington. He's been locked out of one of his most famous creations for 20 years, and it must be nice to be allowed back in. To 
Today's podcast was presented by me, Caroline Crampton, with Sophie Elmhurst, Alex Hearn and Philip Morn, who is also our producer. Our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back next week.